So we are, as I said before, we're in a series in the book of Revelation. And it, it wasn't something I was excited about doing. It was something that went along with the liturgical texts that we follow in the church calendar called the lectionary. But um, I've, I've found that sometimes God can do God's best work when we are in something we don't wanna be in or we would rather do it a different way. And, and this series is called The End and the Beginning. And that idea comes from the fact that in life, when we experience ends and ends do come, things fall apart, things uh, cease to be, there comes with it an opportunity for a new beginning, for a newness, for a change in some area of our life, whether we wanted it or not. And so we've been exploring that through the book of Revelation. This book is about the revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the revelation of the book. And this book is really strange. It has a lot of weird things in it. And uh, I'm thankful that we're not preaching through it, uh, you know, verse by verse. But one thing that is clear throughout this book, Revelation, is that John, the writer who is exiled for his faith, writing on an island, he is trying to help those Christians who he's writing to, and really the whole world at the time, realize that something has ended, that a certain way of viewing the world has ended because a man rose from the dead. Because Jesus Christ assumed a position of lordship that looked different from any lord anyone had ever known, any ruler that anyone could ever have conceived of, because he conquered in a really weird way by dying on a cross. And that's the, the, the end of the belief that a Lord has to be this cruel person that you bend your knee to because you have to or because you want to solicit favor and not be on the unfavorable side of this war-bent, uh, 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 angry tyrant is what John wants us to know. And so this morning, we are exploring this text. It's similar to the text that we looked at last week because it's about a throne room scene kind of, of worship. But there's, there's a lot of differences here, but the text led me to title this, How to Get Along with Everyone, part two. We started that uh, last, last Sunday, so you might, you might hear a few, a few throwbacks to that one. But um, to, to start this, I was thinking about different people who have in my life said what they want to be when they grow up. That's, that's, that's where I started with this. Um, and, and I was thinking about, this was, this was a story in, in, my, in my early 20s. It's this kind of this idea of, you ever heard somebody say like, hey, I'm going to do this thing with my life. I'm going to be like a famous actor or something. And they've never acted in their life. They've never even been to an acting class. They've never been in a play and they're like 25 and you're like, no, no, that's not gonna happen. Um, I, I, uh, I remember being about, probably about 22 and I, I went over to my friend's house. He's a friend from high school and we're sitting in his living room and I think he's like playing Guitar Hero or something. 
and I had just been reading a book that had to do with time travel. And um, he said, yeah, I think time travel's real. I just haven't figured it out yet. Josh, are you, are you kidding me? You're, you're sitting on your couch, 22 years old. You don't even have a college degree. You're playing guitar hero. You're a waiter for a living. And you're telling me you think time travel's real. You just haven't figured it out. And I'm laughing at this point. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, what, I mean, I, I said, well, man, Josh, if you were, if you, like, if I went into your garage and I saw, like, test tubes and beakers and computers everywhere and, like, something that looked really old or, you know, experiments of some kind, then, then I, could, I could go with you there at least a little bit. But I, the, the reason why I started here, this passage of Revelation, is because in, in this book, John is painting this picture, this vision of what the lordship of Jesus, how it's all going to shake out and how it's all going to end. And so often in life, we're, we're guilty of being just like Josh. We think we have this mindset that like things are going to work out in the end. Everything's going to get fixed uh, after we die and we go to heaven or things like that. But we're not looking at the vision of the future and then seeing how in our lives in the present can we work based off of that future reality that we say that we believe in. Oh, I came to your neighborhood pretty quick on that one. We're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of saying, well, things will shake out in the end. Things will get figured out in the end. I'm just going to go ahead and bump along in my little life. And, uh, and then God's just going to presto change the whole thing. And we've even been taught that's what the Bible is telling us. But John, if he was here, he would be probably like weeping in these and thous. Now that would be the King James version, but he would be really upset because he'd say, no, the reason why I believe God gave me these visions is so that we can live in light of that, that idea, that future right now. And so with that, I want us to look at this text for a few minutes because look at what we see starting in this first verse here. It says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. How to get along with everyone. There's every type of person here in, in this passage. Every conceit, anything that John would have been able to recognize in terms of people in the world, he saw it right here in this vision of what it was going to look like when things that are right now ended and the new beginning started. And, and in, in light of, of, of these conversations about time travel and and being a, a pro athlete without training or those kinds of things in the future, I, I, I have to think about the present and I'm like, how can so many people get along? How, many, how can so many different kinds of people get along like that? How, how could that ever be the destination for human beings? Because 
I don't know about you, but my imagination is not always as powerful and divinely inspired as John. So I can consider like certain groups of people getting along, like maybe people that align with me more in, in political thinking, or maybe that um, don't wear socks with sandals at the same time, or maybe uh, people that are uh, fans of grizzlies and not warriors. Where are you, Linda Hansen? Hey. But everybody, all kinds of people, no matter what they, what they look like, what they sound like, what their sexual orientation even is, that everybody could get along in some way, shape, or form. I mean, we can't, we can't get along at all. And when we do, if our, if our getting along is based on just the way we think about a political issue in our culture or society or our socioeconomic class, if we live in the same kinds of neighborhoods or, the, or dress the same way or can afford the same type of car, then once that thing changes, the whole thing falls apart. You can see it on Facebook any day of the week, can't you? Right? It's like, well, I actually don't know how I feel about that issue. Boom, everybody goes in on them. Right? So this picture of this new beginning where John sees every type of person, it's startling to me. It's confusing to me. How do all of these people get along? It says in the passage, right? It says in verses 13 and 14 here, starting in 13, it says, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So let's take a look at this. I want you to try to imagine it with me, okay? So there's every kind of person out there, but they're all wearing a white robe. And John's able to tell that there's every kind of person out there, every, every language, every, every ethnicity, uh, every, every cult, subculture of people out there. There's somebody out there like that. But he can't tell by the status of how they're dressed. Like, I can't recognize, oh, there's, there's the polos and the khaki shorts. There's the East Memphis crowd right there, right? Like, they're here or the, the, the skinny jeans and, 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 the, and, and the jean jackets, right? Oh, Midtown's here, right? They're, they're, all, they're all dressed the same. And, and the way that they're dressed shows that there is no socioeconomic status amongst them. It shows there's no signaling that, oh, our people are the ones that are here right? There's, there's none of those outward classifications 
that would have been really evident for John's listeners of this text or us today to zero in and say, yeah, but these people, but not those people, not those people, anybody but those people would be here in the throne and worshiping my God. There's none of that. And, and so the, the, this guy, this unknown dude who's there, just called the elder, he's like messing with John. He's like, uh, who are they? Who do you think these guys are? Where do they come from? Where did all these people come from? And he's like, I don't know. You know, you're, I mean, you're the one who's like the Dante of Dante's and like, ship. oh, that's the wrong, that's the wrong part. Dante's down, we're, we're up in heaven right now. But the, he, the, the guy guiding, right? He's the guider. Um, and, and so he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Blood, I was, I was telling Mandy this this week, blood grosses me out and Josh. Like th- th- this imagery is so hard for me uh, because I just think about the times when I've gotten blood on my clothes and when blood is like sticking to my clothes before and it's just kind of grosses me out. But it's all, it's all highly symbolic here. All of these people are here in short, and we've talked about this in this series already, because they testified to a reality about a God that they had known, a God that they had encountered, a God that they were saved by. And so this metaphorical washing, of course, it wasn't real blood that was actually washing their white robes because that doesn't make a robe white, but it was an indicator of what they shared in common. I think some of these these, these white robes, they looked kind of like kilts. I think some of them looked kind of like tunics. I think some of them looked kind of like polos and skinny jeans. But they all were the same quality of white, and they were all washed in the same sacrificial blood of the same Lord and Savior, the same God that said, enough of the wars, enough of the battles, I will save you from yourselves and I will take the punishment that you keep trying to give to each other and the punishment that puts you all to death, I'm gonna take that on myself. That's how they were able to be distinguished as incredibly diverse and yet in this way, on equal standing, on equal footing, all together in their diversity, in their kilts, in their moo-moos, in all of their different cultural attire. How else could James have known? How, how else could he have uh, distinguished? Oh, that white robe looks kind of like kente cloth over there, right? And, and this is this message that John sees in this crazy vision It is such an important message in the New Testament. It's in the book of James when he's saying, don't show favoritism to the rich. And he takes a whole chapter to explain, like when somebody comes into your worship setting, don't favor the people who have wealth. You can't do it. It is so far from what we're teaching, what we've learned about what God is like. That's not what God does. Urgently, he's begging them. He's warning them. He's chastising them. Do not show favoritism. It is so incredibly important. In the book of Acts, 
All these people come from all over the place. They hear this message of Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Lord, that he's the Savior. They come from all over the place and they're like, well, we can't leave now. We got to stay here in Jerusalem and learn more about this God. We've never heard this story before. We've never heard this message. We believe it. But guess what? They got hungry. They didn't have food. They didn't have anywhere to stay. And you know what those Christians did? It was, it was the heartbeat of what they believed. They started to redistribute their possessions and their wealth to make sure that everyone there, anybody who wanted to be there, had what they needed. That every person had what they needed. That's what it means, this phrase in, that, in, in the book of Acts that gets translated, and they had everything in common. It means everybody had what they needed. This is, this is also in the text of Leviticus. Uh-oh, I just lost half of us right there, didn't I? Like, no, I had a Bible study one time, and I, did you make it all the way through? <laughs> in the book of Leviticus, there's this thing called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, it sounds, it, it evokes this passage for me. And in the year of Jubilee, all debts are forgiven. The people who lost their land because maybe they got, they got uh, put out by storms or weather or somebody in their family died or whatever it may have been, actually there, were, there weren't any conditions at all. It was just that at the end, at the beginning of the 50th year, the people of Israel were to forgive any debt. I'm not, talk, I'm not going into, I'm not trying to make you think about college debt or anything like that right now, all the stuff that's going on. Just stay with me here. Forgive any debt and to let people reclaim the land that they were on. This way, no one would ever be homeless. No one would be stuck in generational debt, in generational poverty, right? These are the things that this vision of John's evokes in the scriptures and that the writers of the scriptures are preaching to us and telling us. And so this brings us back to what John's original intention was in sending this letter. It was, yes, to give us hope that the things that we're seeing right now are, are not gonna stay this way, but it was also to encourage us as Christians and believers to start to shape and make the world into that vision. That's what it means to testify to testify with your life. These were the ones that came through the great tribulation and all of us in all times will have our own great tribulations. And that they had that robe that was washed in the blood means that with their life, they testified to the Lordship of Jesus who was bearing down on reality in these ways, that all would have enough, that all would be welcome. No amen, huh? I'm up here all by myself. The, if, if, if we were to take all of this seriously as the early Christians 
did, as many of them did, not, not all of them, because John probably wouldn't have had to send this letter around to these churches in Asia Minor, because he was telling them, like, you're lukewarm, and you're not really doing this whole thing, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if we were, the, the implications would be staggering. I mean, it would be staggering to Memphis, Tennessee, the most generous in terms of charity in the country in, in recent times, and yet one of the highest poverty rates, very high homelessness rates, very high problems uh, related to who has enough. And I just wanna give you a couple of small examples that came to mind. I've been thinking a lot about housing, as, as probably all of us have, like ha the, the housing market and everything and how aggressive it is and who's buying up the houses and how that's affecting working class people and the gap that's growing every second between the, the very wealthy who are buying up lots of houses and the working class people who are getting further and further away from being able to afford to buy a house. For every $1,000 that the house price goes up, it takes away another good 5% of people from home ownership in our, in our world, in our country. And as I was looking into some of these things, I came up, I came across this guy named Dwayne A. Jones. I think we have a picture of him. Um, do we, did we get the picture of him? No? No, that's not him. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about her in a second too. Um, so Dwayne A. Jones, he's an Orange Mound native, right, right over here, right? Grew up in Orange Mound. And what he does, he's a contractor and he builds tiny homes in that community. And Orange Mound has a poverty rate in between 28 and 37%. And he buy it, he, he, he uh, builds these homes and he sells them for $45,000 to $60,000. Right, right now that's happening. And he rents some of, some of his homes for as low as $400 to $500 a month. They're nice. They're really pretty. Should look him up. Um, in South Memphis, he's building homes specifically for transgender people on lots that are now occupied by weeds and litter and dead leaves. Uh, he's working on a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house near Hamilton High School, which will sell for only $82,500. So this, this guy, in a time when he could be making money hand over fist, did I say that right? He's building affordable housing right here in Memphis, Tennessee. I, 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 don't, I don't have to know a lot else about somebody like that to know he sees a vision that looks a lot like what John's vision looks like to do that kind of work. Amen? Wow. See, see, John knew that there was a lot of pressure for a lot of these people who had come to profess Christ to continue to go along with what was happening. They, he knew that if they were just to say, no, I don't really believe in Jesus at the right time, it would keep them connected to the economic machine of the Roman Empire. That it, that it wouldn't really, it, it would cease to cost them what it would potentially cost them economically and socially. And he was, he was hoping that when they saw this God-given vision, that they would be encouraged 
that they would find the inner strength, the faith, the hope, the courage, the love to say, no, I'm, I'm not gonna fold to that pressure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help create this world that is what God is bound and determined to make. The whole reason why I believe is because this is the kind of God that saved me. And the other example that I wanted us to be able to fill our imaginations with was somebody right around the corner is uh, this, this uh, woman, Brittany Thornton. She, she started um, uh, Juice, Orange Mound Juice. Have you heard of that? It's really cool. It's such, a, it's such an powerful idea of what it looks like. And, and Mandy uh, created an initiative last fall that was a, is a mini version of this idea as well called the Gen Generosity Project. But what she does is she goes through the community of Or Orange Mound quarterly and asks for donations from that community. And with the money from Orange Mound, people that have so little, they take that money that gathered up those, that, those change and those dollar bills and those $5 bills and creates a business incubator with the money from the neighborhood for the neighborhood so that she can show the neighborhood that if we are able to work together, even with little, that we can produce impressive and helpful things for our community. It just, I, I, I think about this so much. Next week, we're looking at the new heavens and the new earth, where we see, the, where we see this city of, uh, of God and, and what that's like. And, and I think about so much, you know, my wife and I, we met in this intentional Christian community that we lived in for years where we were trying to pool resources and help neighbors and do ownership, uh, group ownership of a property together. And it was so, it was very hard. It was very challenging. And we didn't, we didn't have anybody to look up to in our area. We were looking for people to help guide us, but, but nobody, nobody could talk from it from experience. There were a couple people from out of town that we uh, got to know, but it, it just strikes me of, of how difficult it is to do some of the things that in some ways were easier for the Christians in that time, that they, they lived close together. It was easier for them to share possessions and properties and things like that. And it's harder for us to live that way. And it costs something. John was trying to prepare the churches of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, for the cost of these things. That yes, Jesus died for your sin, but you also follow Jesus. You were washed in the blood. You have come through the turbulation. Every one of us live in a time of great turbulation. That's why it's such a temptation to try to make, for some to make revelation literally about what's going on 2000 years from when it was written, even though it was given to those people to live from right then in that moment that day. I think our tribulation is the ballooning inequalities that are, that are, that are happening right now. And the, the inst instability of it, the unsustainability of it, and how that goes so much against the sovereignty of Christ, the rule of Christ, the kingdom of heaven and of God that we profess to be saved by. 
in verse 10, this group, this multitude of, of, of the folks with kente cloth and socks with sandals, they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is, this is who, who they're praising. They're, they're praising this God, and I'm, I'm just gonna talk for, for just a couple more minutes here. They're praising this God that their salvation belongs to, this lamb. We've seen this lamb, this, this slaughtered lamb. And, and John, he, he spends a lot of time describing the things around this lamb. He, he almost assumes that these people, they know some of these integral aspects of who Jesus was. But I just want to remind you from this text here that John, or that, that Paul uh, wrote in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter one, verse 15 through 22, describing this God. Because I think it's important to, to think about whose God is this? If the multitudes of every tribe, tongue, and language, all peoples are there, it's got to be a pretty big God. So in, in verse 17 of Colossians 1, it says, this of Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, all things. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is, this is the God who says, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the God who says, pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Don't, don't hate them, pray for them. And this is a tension. This is a tension in the, the book of Revelation and in the scriptures themselves. Because there is, there is, a, there is a warrior God, a God of, of judgment that exists in Revelation and in these scriptures. And yet we're following a God who put down the sword and absorbed all of the blows. And it's, un, it's unresolved in the cosmic scheme of things. Like it's not entirely resolved. We just know what it's gonna look like in the end. But the, the, the Jesus that we follow and the vision that Paul shows us, are people, are they holding swords? Are they conquering through violence? No, they're holding palm branches. They're unarmed and it's who would they even have to fight against really? I mean, everybody's there. All the peoples are there. So this, this God, I, I want to, uh, this is the part that, that I, want, I wanted to make sure to get to before we end today. It's, it's very important how we think about this definition of God, of why we worship this God, this God that we profess, 
Because here's the thing. In first century, Caesar, the Caesar of the day, who changed all the time, probably the uh, Domitian was emperor right now during John's writing of this, wants everybody to acknowledge Caesar's divinity through this thing called the imperial cult. And if you were to acknowledge it, it came with certain continued rights and privileges. And if you didn't, then, you know, you could get thrown to lions or something like that or crucified. Um, there is a certain satisfaction that can come with feeling like you chose the right God. In there? Like to be right? Like to, how much more satisfying could it be? Like, like this morning, um, the light was on on the oven and I didn't do it. I didn't leave it on. And I, and I went and I, I turned it off and um, I, I told Becky, I was like, hey, just to let you know, the oven light was on and I turned it off. <laughs> it feels... It feels really good to be right, doesn't it? And, and I think one of the things that I'm faced with in this passage, and I hope you are today, is, here's the, here's the thing, that it's got to be more than I grew up in the right culture and therefore I chose the right God and everybody else is in big trouble. Like it's gotta be more than that. And that's what John's showing us back in the first century, seeing people he's never, he's not probably never even run into. I don't think here what John wants us to think is you better choose the right God or lucky you, you did choose the right God. It's that this is the only God that could ever be for all people. It could only ever be a God who put down God's sword and welcomed every person to the table. Just like from Psalm 23, in the presence of mine enemies, you prepared the table before me. This is the tension that we are told we don't get to resolve. We wave the palm branches, we testify, we dream, we imagine, we ask God to help us create this world, this future where every person belongs and we are at peace. This is your chance right now, go ahead, amen. The tension is so thick, I'm gonna end on this, that in the verses before this passage, John hears numbers being shouted out. And the numbers are of the tribes of Israel. And for the listeners at that time, what they would have recognized that is as a census for war, a counting up of the available soldiers that they heard. But when this pa passage starts, if you got it in front of you, you can look, what does it start? It doesn't start with him hearing something, it starts with him seeing something. He looks thinking he's going to see 
warriors ready for battle. And he sees those testifying to the slain lamb, the God of all. 